Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all of that bad relationship advice using science. Science rules. Heck yes. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson. It's a Bill Nye reference. Sorry. No, yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always Bill Nye, the science guy. Bill, Bill, Bill. Yeah, all right. Sorry. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. I'm Dr. Jacob Priest from the University of Iowa in Iowa City, Iowa. I didn't know we were doing cities today. I don't know. I was just trying to mix it up. I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. Today, Jacob will bring us something very interesting, I'm sure, in popping culture. Then in the academic deep dive segment, we're going to discuss an academic article, Parents' Anxiety Links Household Stress and Young Children's Behavioral Dysregulation. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to cover some advice that actually uh, a listener requested way back before this pandemic on step parenting. If you have any advice you'd like us to talk about, send it in. You can email it to us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at Attached Podcast, or you can go to our wonderful website, attachedpodcast.com, and send us a message there. I'm sure that there are other ways of getting us advice. I just can't think of them right now. Before we get to this wonderful episode, what's up? How are you guys doing? So, Patricia, I have a very important question to ask you oh. that I was sent to ask you by my, oh my wonderful gosh. wife. Okay, here we go. Have you ever made baklava? No, I've never okay. made it before. We are going to venture into the world of baklava today. I love and it. And we needed some tips. So if you have relationship advice or baklava tips, please send them <laughs> in. Sarah, have you ever the made baklava? Uh, I think I have, but I think it's been many, many years. Okay. Well, I used to ask, there are, yeah, I used to, there are a number of grad students who made baklava or their family did. So I've had several conversations mm. with people about making baklava. And the one mm. tip they gave me was you're supposed to put lemon in the sugar so that it doesn't, lemon juice in the sugar, so it doesn't crystallize when you mm. bake it. Yeah. So that's okay. the only bit of advice I have given from people whose family culturally make baklava. Okay. I don't know that's if that helps at all. Lemon juice and the sugar. I don't know. We'll let you know how it goes. We love it. We decided to dedicate the rest of this afternoon to baking, and that was something that we put on our list. Oh my gosh! Um, so we're that's that how is we're right up my aisle. Our Labor Day weekend. So I love it. Should be pretty good. I'm here for it. Woods. <laughs> oh, my super exciting life. We're wanting. We're wanting an update from me. I have only an epilogue to my gardening scenario <laughs> concluded yesterday. And I've produced, I, I don't know how many bushels of basil are now growing in the backyard. Oh my gosh, I Oh, love do you basil measure so basil much. in bushels? Yes. But it, I think maybe between that and the chives I don't eat, they just took over all the space. Yeah. I, I officially had to rip out all the dead tomato plants. And oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Everything's, the, the peppers are gone. The, I don't know where the garlic went. I mean, it, it didn't really grow it at all anyways, but um, that's gone. It disappeared. It's not even like dead and wilted. It's just gone. It's just dirt. And like, you know, hundreds of weeks. <laughs> and so we officially, I have nothing to show for nine months basil. of work basil you have basil right. to show right i got too way too much basil we have not dedicated this afternoon to pesto making but it is <laughs> it's possible that we'll now be inspired i appreciate it so, oh can i give a pesto tip please because this is now a yes. cooking show you know how pesto you put parmesan in it <laughs> sure i do now okay go on <laughs> So I find that the best Parmesan to put in is not actually Parmesan. It's those Parmesan crisps that you can buy because it's really intense flavored Parmesan and it makes the pesto taste so much better. Of course you know that. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. (laughs) 
So speaking of food, um, I oftentimes like to use this time in our conversation to reveal weird things that I am into or that I'm doing. I don't know why I do that, but I feel like this is the only platform where yeah. I can share this. The only platform. Yes. Huh? I feel it. like faculty meeting. That's what therapists can be for too. Yes. Which is what we are and That's we function true. that way. That's yeah. 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 Um, I feel like faculty meetings might not be the best place for this. Parent-teacher meetings aren't the best place. They're very limited uh, avenues for me to to share. But anyway, I do have friends. Anyway, so I have discovered (laughs) a rabbit hole in YouTube that I am obsessed with. It is videos on Las Vegas buffets. (laughs) (laughs) What? Um, (laughs) so i haven't i haven't really been making a whole lot of food recently but now i've started watching a lot of food videos and one of my favorite comedians on twitter said i fell down a youtube hole of las vegas buffets and i was like review of them so it's a review somebody reviewing these buffets and i was like that sounds amazing (laughs) and i started watching them and they are in fact amazing the quality isn't that great but like i'm kind of i don't really like las vegas that much but i'm planning a trip in my mind now to go to las vegas for the buffets right not the good food (laughs) right i tell you some of this food looks amazing it's good yeah well that's good it's an interesting adult (laughs) spin on like children the best place to go during a pandemic no no it would be years before i do it and hopefully by then i will have gotten this out of my system and i will no longer be curious about buffets the other really weird thing is that as you guys know i'm like a vegetarian so buffets aren't really the ideal source of food for me but say la vie. That's what I'm into. Mm. Check it out, you guys. When do we start getting worried about her in Tennessee, Sarah? When do we actually like right. fly out for an intervention? Right, right, right. It's not now, but it's, it feels soon. It does, <laughs> I agree. There's like a line that I feel approaching, and it's it's not here yet, but it's close. It's getting close. Oh, um, it's interesting that, that I don't feel super supported right now. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh. Sometimes therapists are meant to challenge, no, not true. just. Exactly. Fair, right. fair, exactly. fair, fair, fair. Anyway, definitely going to watch another one tonight. First up, poppin' culture. We learn about relationships from our friends and families, but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture. So for this first segment, we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships. Jacob, what do you have for us this week? So I'm taking a little detour. This is going to come as a shock and a surprise to all of you. No okay. reality television this week. Yay! So The crowd goes <laughs> wild! <laughs> I, too, fell down a rabbit hole this past weekend. But a different one. Oh. Um, have okay. you heard of Judgy. the the Enneagram? Yes. No. Oh yes. Okay. We've talked. I feel like we've talked about it on this podcast, right? Have we? No. Oh, it's been on my list to talk about. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, so I kind of fell down this rabbit hole because I saw something on Twitter about like Enneagram. This I was like, and then I've mm. been running into people's like, this is my number. This is my mm. number. I'm like, what are you oh, talking about? I don't yeah. know what my number is. So I decided to kind of investigate this Enneagram thing. Um, So first, there was a little bit of drama. There was a little bit of drama. I don't know. So Brene Brown wrote a prologue to an Enneagram guy's book because she liked it. And then it came out that this guy was kind of not the greatest dude. So she kind of backed away from it. Okay. Anyway, I'm not focusing on this because this is a different version that I fell into. Okay. Um, So if you Google Enneagram, which I'd never done before, the first thing you land is like the Enneagram Institute which boasts having a scientifically validated measure of the Enneagram. So can we back up just a a little bit for me? What is an Enneagram? So the Enneagram, I believe, comes out of a Sufi tradition. So an Iranian personality measure. Okay. Is what I believe it is. And it has kind of been, I don't want to say co-opted, but I'm going to say co-opted by a lot of 
people who are interested in like doing those leadership business mm. personality trainings. I don't know, like when I was growing up, like they had the colors and then there yes. was like the big letters that they have, the INJF or something like that. Yes. And now I feel like this Enneagram is kind of making its way to the forefront. So really it, it's like this nine pointed star and each okay. different location represents a different type of personality you might have. So there's like multiple types of personalities. There's the reformer, the helper, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. These are each okay. of the nine personality types that you can have. So I kind of did a little deep dive because I was like, wait, what is this thing? Is it really scientifically valid? So yeah, nice. I did find a 2004 study that shows uh, the test the validity and reliability of this. Yeah, okay. and it wasn't that great. They actually used mm. a big five personality measure to compare mm. it to. And some of the scales in the Enneagram weren't that reliable. They have some reasons why they would say that is. But I really wanted to be like, okay, before I call bullshit on this, because I'm not a huge fan of personality tests. Yeah. I need to take the Agreed. test. So yes. do you want to know what I did? I spent what $12 because that's how much <laughs> did you? I love... I did. I spent the $12 nice. and I took the Riso Hudson Enneagram Type Indicator, version okay. nice. 2.5. Nice. So let me just go through some of the questions on here because I had to write some of them down because they were really oh, interesting. It. So, like, for example, you have to, this whole test, you have two statements and you have to endorse one or the other. Okay. And so, like, is it, for example, is it just a yes, no, or is it like a scale? No, you have two statements and you have to say either I'm this statement or I'm that oh. statement. So statement one is typically I have had not I have not had much self-discipline or typically I have not had much connection with people. So that was kind of weird. I didn't know how to respond seem there. And then not related. Yeah. Yeah. And then you have like another one. I have provided many people with attention and nurturance. And I have provided many people with direction and motivation. But then there's also ones that are more out of left field. Like, I have tended to have trouble falling asleep. And I have tended to fall asleep easily. Right? So you fill out 144 of these. There's 144. It takes quite a, a long time. Yeah, but that sleep one at least seems related to each other. Yeah. So these were kind of all over the place. Yeah. That was my first reaction. Like, I don't know how to choose because some of these are context dependent. Right. And maybe it's just because I have a less developed personality. Yep. It's you, Jacob. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> we didn't even but, have to come up with that one. You just burned yourself. <laughs> Yikes. But then, so after I took these 144, like, statements, it gave me a printout of information about myself Ooh. that was about 33 pages long, which I thought Whoa. was pretty incredible that they knew this much about me just by filling out <laughs> 144 questions. So do you want to know what my personality is? I would is? love to. Yes. Yes. Um, do you want to guess? I... Like, given those, can you guess? Yeah, Sarah, do you want to guess? Well, I was going to say that I, too, did this exact thing about two months ago in the name of science, hoping we oh, would talk about this. <laughs> yes. Okay, Sarah, so tell me about your experience. No, no, no. So I did not do the paid version. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. I, I was in the name of science, but just not that much science. So I did some version on, like, Truity or some – I don't know. I linked to something that found some free version. So then I got my types and decided that does not apply to me at all, and so science did not apply here. So I'm eager to hear what your types are, what your, what your number is. Yeah, so maybe again, this kind of shows how my personality is not developed, but out of a, like, I had four that were all, or five that were all within one point of each other. Mm. Oh. Diplomatic. So my top one was tied, was the the achiever and the enthusiast. Okay, mm. those math Followed on. closely by the peacemaker, the helper, and the challenger. Oh. oh. Mm. So you got all those things. There's only nine options. Yeah. You've got most of them. <laughs> I got five other than nine. So then, like I said, it gives you this huge printout. But because this is the relationship podcast, yeah, I wanted to bring up this specifically because under each type, they have what you are most likely to have relationship issues. But before I read that, can we just quickly say that they also list people that share this personality type? And most of them are dead. Like, Augustus. So this is a three for me. 
right? Augustus Caesar took, uh, was took this accordingly measure too? this time. Yeah, like, well, there are some living people, but I don't think they've taken Science. it. Like Mitt Romney, <laughs> I Oprah mean... Winfrey, supposedly. O.J. Simpson is supposedly this personality type too. I don't know how I feel about that. Don Draper from Mad Men. And also Rachel Berry Fiction- from oh, Glee. F- fictional characters also. <laughs> oh, that's... Yeah. So, but let me read you what they say... As a three, again, know if that those is the, are uh, the achiever. Fictional characters I would want to relate to terribly. Um, yeah. So oh. this is what they tell me about my relationship issue. Okay. Oh. Threes often report that they feel confident in their ability to attract other people. Oh. They are usually charming and magnetic, mm. and they know how to behave appropriate, appropriately. Also, many threes spend significant time and resources cultivating their personal presentation. They work at being in good physical condition and are often well-groomed. They want their partner to be proud of them and their accomplishments, so they often are drawn to people who they believe will appreciate them. The problem is that threes fear that many parts of themselves may be less than outstanding or even unacceptable. Fears of potential rejection may prevent them from letting people get close to them. Significant relationship issues include, I won't read all of these, holding their partner to strict standards, presenting a favorable image of themselves that they later feel they won't be able to live up to, workaholism as a way to avoid intimacy, and haranguing their partner for not reflecting well on them for behaving in ways that they do not support the three's self-image. So how do you feel about that? I I feel this is all just <laughs> so poorly, poorly done, right? First of all, my larger issue with personality tests is they're inherently non-systemic, yeah. right? The relationship and context you're embedded, you are embedded in are going to require that you have different traits at different times, right? And also your relationship issues. Yeah, right? Like that doesn't mean the core of who you are is necessarily changing, but the role I have as a dad is different than the role I have as a professor, which is different as the role I have as a partner, which is different than the role I have as a friend. And all of those things are context dependent and bring out different sides of who I am. Also, to take a personality to test and then to ex- extrapolate that to how you are going to be in a relationship, I find really problematic. I think that relationships are built and change over time and to have to answer 144 questions and then be able to like say, oh, this is what my your relationships problems are going to be like, I think is setting people up to have expectations about what they should look for and what they should build in relationship that are not really grounded in the evidence. And I mean, I am always want to push back on personality tests, but I feel like a lot of people do find value in them. Mm -hmm. They like knowing to be able to know who they are. Yeah. But I also think that this can be better done in conversation with people who are most important to you as opposed to a test on the internet. Right. And there's a lot of Enneagram fans out there who will probably send me messages if and when they listen to this. And I don't think that it's necessarily if something you enjoy doing. I just don't think that there's enough evidence here currently to say that you can have any predictive validity about your relationships, about how you're going to be under stress, given the current science. Sure, they may have evidence that this measure has some form of validity, but the predictive validity, in other words, being able to extrapolate how I answer this to how my life will be is basically not. Especially, yeah, especially given that they're not including your partner in this, like like you alluded to the systemic portion of it, like a system. They're not including the other people who are engaged in this relationship with you. Yeah, and so like... I, I have been through to these trainings where you have different personality tests, and I feel sometimes they're bordering on hooky, right? <laughs> like that it's more if I believe in this, then I will be able to have a pathway for my life. And I think that, you know, potentially that could be useful, but I also worry that this has the potential to flip over into that guru realm, mm. right? Where, you know, there's an art to doing really good therapy. There's an art to being you know being able to connect with clients and talk about this and i think it's an important art but when you have that art without the science without the training you become like a guru and that can be really problematic there's a really good 
documentary on Netflix called that, <laughs> called Guru, which which shows how people can find connection through that, but often they're going to end up getting let down when they put themselves in something that really is just purported by people who are, in many cases, just using this to make money. I yep. hate saying that out loud, but... I, I often worry when you have these types of this is who I am and this is what it's going to be prescriptions based on a single time point of data collection that it becomes problematic. So I know that there's lots of Enneagram people out there who like this, who think it's useful, but I just don't see the science back mm-hmm. to this. Mm-hmm. Sarah, was that your experience when you took this test? Yes. Also, it told me I was an eight, a challenger, (laughs) self-confident, decisive, willful, confrontational. And I decided that was not accurate, which maybe, maybe is proof enough that That, I am. That you're challenging it. (laughs) That I am confrontational. But it just, I really didn't like it. And so in the backup, the backup number it gave me, I also didn't really like. So it, it's one of those things that bugs me a lot, as you're describing, Jacob, that feels very for-profit and not based in science. And so builds on people feeling kind of reassured or interested and in giving them a whole bunch of information about themselves and a lot of other things that they couldn't possibly know. It feels really problematic. I agree. Yeah. And actually, too, one of the reasons I think I kind of got t- turned on to this, there was a recently an article t- talking about using the Enneagram by family therapists or in family therapy. And it was published in in a journal, Contemporary Family Therapy, that I was just like, I don't mm. know how comfortable I feel about. Mm. Did you look and see if the, what the funding source was of that? There was no funding yeah. source. I can post it on here. A guy out of Florida who's in private practice who uses the Enneagram. And I, I mean, like if people want to do this and they find value out of it, I think they should just understand the caveats. Yeah, right? of course. Like the the evidence that they're purporting on the website where it's a scientifically validated measure isn't as strong as they're as they're saying. And there was a couple of things that looked like they were going to talk about predictive validity, but they were in Arabic. So I really couldn't read them. So I would just I don't know, like I fell down this rabbit hole of reading about this and learning about this. And I would just want to share that there should be caution when using these types of personality tests, especially to extrapolate to what your relationship's going to be like. Absolutely. As much fun as talking about Baywatch, which is a new reality television series on on Netflix, which I'm going to talk about. Bay as in B-A-E, which stands for before anyone else. But that's for the next time's podcast. We're going to talk about Baywatch because it's amazing. But for this today, Enneagram, not, not great. Now we're going to move on to the academic deep dive segment and talk about an article titled Parents' Anxiety Links Household Stress and Young Children's Behavioral Dysregulation, written by Andrea Fields, Chelsea Harmon, Zoe Lee, and Dr. Nim Tottenham at Columbia University and Dr. Jennifer Louie at Child Mind Institute. Recently published in the Journal of Developmental Psychobiology, these authors tested links between stressful environments and child's mental health. They first outlined that 46% of kids in the U.S. have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience or stressful or traumatic event, such as parents' mental illness or substance use, abuse, or neglect. Young children are at greatest risk of these experiences. Decades of research has documented the association between these extreme childhood stressors and emotional behavioral issues in young children. However, unlike these previous studies, the researchers whose work we're going to cover in this academic deep dive looked at general household stress resulting from potentially stressful experiences that are actually rather frequent, such as arguments with siblings, changing schools, or parents' divorce. And even more importantly, they tested whether parents' experience of stress was part of the association between household stress and children's anxiety and behavioral issues. In other words, does parents' experience of anxiety transmit anxiety to their children? Because what I need definitely is more (laughs) guilt about my own anxiety. Anyway, Sarah, tell me about how this general household stress could be a problem 
how they measured it. And I'm, I'm really hoping for some uh, solutions here too, if it sure. is bad. I'm not gonna promise the latter, but I can hopefully <laughs> deliver on the former. They had a sample of 115 young kids, two to six years old, and their parents. And this was a community-based sample. So it's really important to remember that this is not a clinical sample. This is, okay. um, they're not looking at extreme stressors and they're not looking at anyone with diagnosed psychological or behavioral issues. So these are parents, any anxiety they're talking about here is not anything that's been clinically diagnosed before. This is a community sample. The kids didn't have learning disabilities, neurological issues, nothing. So they took data from two different studies that had similar goals and for a total of 115 kids and their parents. And to measure this general household stress you're describing, they used what's called the Coddington Life Events Scale, which I was not familiar with, but it includes 40 different items that measures both the presence of a specific kind of stressor that could occur in a home, a life event, and then the impact of that normative household stressor. And they looked at stressors that occurred in the past three months. So parents not only mark whether or not a stressor occurred in the last three months, but also they rate the impact of that stressor on their child. Like Mm -hmm. no impact at all to a great deal of impact. And then they weight those scores of the household stressors for each child based on how much impact the parents thought that it had. And then these authors additionally broke the scale down into looking at child-targeted stressors versus adult-targeted stressors. For example, stressors that would potentially be perceived to impact kids more, like increased arguments with siblings. Although, Patricia, maybe you could attest that maybe that also impacts parents. (laughs) But then versus adult-targeted stressors, which were things like changes in parents' financial status, which would conceivably maybe impact adults more. And items could overlap, so they could occur in both child and adult targeted, like death of a of a important family member, for example, but they tried to separate those out. And then what they found just at baseline was parents rated child targeted stressors as more impactful, significantly more impactful for kids mm. than adult targeted stressors, which I think is really important to remember for kind of what we're going to break down a little bit. Yeah. And of their full sample, at least 43 kids had at least one child targeted stressor and 22 kids their families had at least one adult targeted stressor. So again, a community sample, general, normal household stressors, nothing too extreme. And then they looked at parents' trade anxiety, parenting-related stress, child anxiety, and child externalizing symptoms. So um, Mm. potentially behavior issues and difficulty regulating their behavior. Then they took a subsample of these kids and brought them into the lab to try to confirm parents' reports of their anxiety, their internalizing kind of distress, and their externalizing behavior issues, putting them through a few different lab tests, like the Tower of Patience, which I had not read about before, which Mm -hmm. is like this tower building activity, which these are two to six-year-olds, average like four, so they're little. They might, like I imagine it like a Jenga tower, but they take blocks and they take turns, and with each successive turn, the researcher takes a little bit more time with their turn. <laughs> and so they're testing like how, how fidgety kids get and yeah. how, how distracted they get, whether they have trouble kind of regulating their behavior, they become impulsive. And they found that parents' reports were correlated really closely with their what they observed in the lab, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then they also had parents submit cortisol samples. So four different time points across two days, they collected saliva for cortisol samples to see if they could assess the stress at a more objective level than just parents' reports to their kids' anxiety. So what they found was that there was, as you would expect, a significant association between the degree of household stress exposure and increased child anxiety and increased Mm. child externalizing problems, which makes sense, and a connection between stress exposure and increased parent anxiety also surely makes sense. Yes, yes, yes. All three of us are... Fully on board with that <laughs> But what they what they found or what they tested was this was as you described, Patricia, whether parents' stress and anxiety transmitted served as a link between um, household yeah. stress and kids' reactions. And so they found that parents' anxiety partially transmitted, partially connected household stress and kids' anxiety. Okay. But it, it fully explained the link between household stress and kids' behavior issues. Oh. So, yeah. So I think that's really interesting. And that was kind of their primary question. But they also found that parents who reported increases in their anxiety or had higher anxiety was significantly related to kids' evening cortisol samples. So you could observe in the in the children's cortisol connection to the parent's own anxiety. Yeah, I would also imagine that that link would also make bedtime very challenging. 
Woof. Yeah. Yeah. You're carrying that into your sleep routine. Yeah. Woof. Yeah. Sorry. That's a clinical, that's a science word for (laughs) yikes bikes. So what I had said earlier was that parents rated the impact of the child specific stressors to be greater than adult specific stressors. But actually what they found Mm -hmm. was that the child targeted stressors were not significantly associated with kids anxiety or externalizing problems. Yeah. It was the adult targeted stressors Mm -hmm. that were associated with kids increased anxiety and externalizing problems. So the few different ways that they sliced this, they found evidence for parents' anxiety really transmitting the effects of normal household stressors, especially the ones that impacted the adult specifically. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I am observing a lifetime effect on Patricia that I assume it's possible our listeners could be having. I uh, apologize. In the, in the middle of a pandemic whilst homeschooling. Right. Yeah, sure. but it's important to right. know. Like, right. It's science. True. It's science. But what I think what I think is an important takeaway, I don't think it's, well, I'm hoping it doesn't feel like a, a doomsday scenario. No, but... Can I tell you what I do like about it is it's something as a parent, me and my husband have control over, right? Like we have right. control over how we handle our anxiety or, or you know coping skills, trying to mm-hmm. increase their coping skills, where sometimes mm-hmm. the, the child-focused ones like siblings fighting, you feel like we have less control over. So there's a silver lining if there's anything. Yes. No, I think for sure. I think there's multiple silver linings. Okay. Give them, <laughs> yeah. lay them on me. Just to enhance general buy-in to this article, for sure. I think, I mean, I think kids are resilient. That is one yes. takeaway, right? That we we accurately are rating, or at least in this sample, parents were accurately rating when, ki- when kids are stressed. They right. got that right. But they just were not, they were a little maybe confused about what was stressing them. Yeah. And that is important. That means kids are doing just fine with normative stressors that we would think would impact them. It's the stuff that we are maybe thinking Oh, they're buffered from that. That's like parent-adult stuff. Yeah. That's like, you know, they don't know about our layoff or, uh, well, they might right. know about that, but they don't know about our banking situation or they don't know about how we're going to put food on the table. That's like a conversations happening at the adult level. But really, they're saying that that's Or that I'm that stressed about getting tenure. They, they don't right. know about those things. They, right. They don't. <laughs> they, well, maybe they do is my point. <laughs> I think what you're saying is right, Patricia, that parent stress and anxiety is really, really important. And it's not just important for our own sake, for parents' own sake. It's really important to think about how this transmits to kids. And these, again, were not clinical levels of anxiety. This was stress in a community sample. We, as parents, translate stress to our kids. They feel that when we are stressed. And so I I agree with your silver lining that self-care and kind of moderating our own distress and anxiety is critical. And sometimes I think we frame this for parents when we need to sell this idea. We we try to frame it as like self-care is really important for your kid, which is true. And I think this makes an argument for that. But also self-care is important for you, you as a parent because your stress impacts you and your own health as well as trickles down into your family. There's downstream benefits of taking care of yourself. Yes. Long-term downstream benefits. Take care of yourself, y'all. I, yeah, Jacob? I really like this article, Woods. I'm, yeah, I really like this article, Woods. I thought it was really, really interesting what they did and how they did it. I think I would be really bad at the Tower of Patience or the snack delay. Yeah. Like, I'm yeah. glad I didn't yeah. have to go through yeah. that because I feel like yeah. that would really stress me out. Like, hurry it up, we're playing Jenga. Anyway, yeah. but just to kind of. You sound like a dream to play look. games with. <laughs> back, to, back to that Enneagram number you disagreed with, Jacob. <laughs> the Achiever? Was that what you were? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Science. <laughs> Anyway, what I thought was really interesting, and we use this word a lot in this podcast, systemic, right? Yeah. And really, when we're saying that, we're just talking about the interconnectedness of people in relationships, how we affect and are affected by each other. And I think that this illustrates this really clearly. And also, not only at like a report level, but at a physiological level. Like, as a parent, the stress that... I don't know, my child doesn't know about that I'm experiencing affects them. And so it really talks about the interconnectedness of how, you know, regardless of how we see our relationships, that they're going to be connected to each other and they're going to affect each other, even if we're not talking about it. 
right? If I'm not telling my five-year-old that I'm worried about getting tenure, that stress is still going to affect them. So I just really thought this was interesting, and I really appreciated the way that they went about studying this and thinking about this. And a team of a team of mostly graduate I students. Think the, the results Amazing. are God, yeah, I love it really when graduate cool students work. do really work. Cool work. Now. So creative. It's going to make me think, you know, as I embark on this parenting journey, really about how to manage my own stress, because at the end of the day, that might be one of the most important things. Mm-hmm. Yep. Woohoo! Boo! So finally, time for good or bad advice, where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture. We hear relationship advice from parents, family, and friends. We see advice about how to be in relationships from movies and TV shows, sometimes TikTok. And we read endless advice spewed at us on social media, blogs, and all of those numerous top 10 lists. But a lot of it just isn't good advice for relationships. This is the part of the show when we use science to decide if this advice was good or bad. If you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about, send it to us. Email us at attachedpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Instagram us, Facebook us at Attached Podcast, or go straight to our website, attachedpodcast.com, and send us a message. While you're at it, please like and subscribe to our podcast and share it with your loved ones. We're also newly on YouTube, so if you haven't gotten enough of our voices, you also can see our faces. So go to Attached Podcast at YouTube and like and subscribe our videos for season two. So today, we're going to talk about advice on being a step-parent. One of our listeners requested this way, way, way back before the pandemic started, and sorry, but we're just now getting to it, but I think it's absolutely great advice. We've talked a lot about parenting, but step-parenting is a whole different ballgame. And these are some tips from WebMD. Are you guys ready? Yes. Let's do it. Fantastic. Affirmative. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, So these are do's or don'ts of step parenting. Don't come on too strong. Many step parents try hard to create an instant bond, says Christina. She's an MFT author of Cue Cards for Life. Though they have good intention, many step parents try to buy their stepchild's love through lots of gifts or by being the really cool parent. Kids can see right through this. Be realistic and be yourself. You'll have a better chance of developing that close relationship you long for. Good or bad advice? Don't come on too strong. I I always, uh, this is going to be really funny. I was going to say, I always don't like advice that's black or white, which is also (laughs) all black or white thinking (laughs) anyway. I'm going to say this. I'm going to rephrase that. I'm going to say, typically, I don't like advice that says you should either do this or not do this. I like the last piece of this advice. Be realistic and be yourself. Yeah. But part of being yourself may be that you kind of come on strong. And it also may be that the kid's in a place where maybe they're feeling distant from both parents, you know, both. And as a step parent, you're like coming in there and you can provide that secure, safe connection. Right. I don't think that, you know, buying gifts and trying to win over somebody's love is necessarily a good strategy. I would agree with that, too. But too strong is too nebulous for me to say this is good advice. Yeah. So I'm going to say bad advice, but I'm going to say good advice and be realistic and be yourself. Okay. Good. Ad- so in other words, I'm trying to, I'm on the fence. Okay. But I'm trying not to <laughs> she, right. Trying to make it, it sound. Like right. 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 Yeah. Okay. So Jacob per history is on the fence. Woods. I'm going to say good advice. I think my reasoning is that different than Jacob's, I think. Okay. And I don't I don't think this is necessarily specific to step families. I think that trying to buy love through gifts or by being a really cool parent, however you define that, I'm a cool mom, I think is probably not that effective. I do think also, I, I just don't think that's how we build close relationships with kids or most people. And so I think it can be really important to think about how to be authentic and how to make sure that your stepkids know that they matter to you yeah. and to spend time with them and to develop closeness through like emotional closeness and connection. And I don't think the ways that this person is describing it, I agree with her, are not 
are not genuine. So we kind of like the uh, realistic and be yourself portion of this, but sometimes it sounds like the coming on too strong, that that portion is is hard to, to wrap around because sometimes it's, it's good to be yourself and be authentic. Um, I could also imagine like, don't come on too strong could also be perceived as ambivalent. So being an, a, a new step parent, you wouldn't want to be perceived as not caring or, or being ambivalent too. Mm -hmm. So good advice? I would say with caveat. Good advice yeah, with caveats. With Do get on the same parenting page with your new spouse and his or her ex. All the parents need to discuss their methods, rewards, punishment, chores, allowances, bedtime, homework, and come to an agreement about the rules. This is by Dr. Tassina, author of Money, Sex, and Kids. The transition is much easier if the parents are in accord. If something happens you haven't discussed, just defer to one parent and work it out later. Good or bad advice? <sighs> oh, I have some mixed feelings about this. Okay, lay it on us. So... I do like this idea of getting on the same page when it comes to parenting. Yes. But I don't know if it's necessary to have, like, both houses have the same rewards, punishments, chores, mm. allowances, bedtimes, and homework. Right? Like, different households are going to have different rules and different flexibility. Right. And I think that's I mean, the parents, okay. The parents are divorced. Like, in theory, they, they might not be able to agree on some things. So forcing that might be impossible. Yeah. It also might work yeah, well, like, but I like... That, you know, I, I think that when you get on the same page for parenting, it's more about the process, the values that you want instilled, which is probably a little bit easier to get on the, on the same page as, and not the way you necessarily operationalize that. Having this expectation that your kid is going to have the same bedtime at one place as in another maybe a little bit unrealistic or that they're going to have the exact same chores at one house as, as another is could potentially also be unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So if you define parenting on the same page as that way, I'm going to say bad advice. If you define it as the adults in the room that are all involved in the kids' lives have discussions and ongoing discussions about what the kid needs and how to best be there for them and those ongoing conversations if that's what you're talking about being on the same page then i'm going to say good advice but as it's written here i'm going to say bad okay woods i would probably agree with that i i would say that this is good advice i agree that it's sometimes quite impossible to be on the same page i think also when i think about getting on the same parenting page there's there's sometimes some bigger picture family rules and family norms than like bedtime or how mm -hmm. we do homework how we treat each other with respect how we maintain open communication how the parents in the system talk to each other and maintain some of that communication can really be very promoting of healthy de development for kids in these blended families and also i think it it promotes closeness between the kids and their relationships with their parents but also so their step parents. It's not necessarily that I have to be on the same exact page with you, but I have to know what your page is and we have to be talking about this book we're trying to write for our, our kid because separate homes doesn't mean that we're now separate families in terms of this child. This is still their whole family, the really complex family as a whole. And the whole is always greater than the sum of the parts. So I think it's really important to think about um, not necessarily that our rules need to be exactly the same, but do we know how things operate in these different homes and can we communicate in a way that's that's healthy and adult to benefit our kids? Right, and, and communication, especially between divorced parents, doesn't necessarily have to be verbal. Sometimes you can effectively communicate through email, through text, uh, just find what works best for your family. But also, as we just kind of alluded to in the academic deep dive segment, you know, children are, are quite flexible. They're resilient. Mm -hmm. A set of rules at one house, as long as they're clear rules, can be different from a set of rules at another house, as long as they're clear rules. Kids can, can be flexible and, and jump from house to house. So I, I think going more to kind of the macro level and talking about the effective communication about values between the, the parents, however they choose to communicate, is one way to think about getting on the same page. So it sounds like we think this is 
good advice, but more at the the macro level of getting on the same page, but this minutia of exactly the, the micro level the, of getting on the same exact page with specific how you do homework and when bedtime is between each house might be less important. Do encourage your stepchild to have one-on-one -on -one time with both of his or her biological parents. Some step parents are threatened by their stepchildren spending time alone with their biological parent, especially their spouse's ex, but they shouldn't be. When you're supportive of it, you're sending the right message that this isn't a competition for affection and that you truly want to see your stepchildren happy. Good or bad advice? I think this is good advice. You know, developing one-on-one -on -one relationships I think is important in any context. And you know, if you're saying, oh, you shouldn't spend time alone with the ex-partner, that's really something scary you're saying to a child. I don't, I mean, that seems like a really big triangle you're developing and it could potentially be really problematic. So for me, I think this is great advice. Kids, regardless if it's with their parents, step parent, or whoever they view as a caregiver or parent should be, should have one-on-one -on -one time with them, should be able to build that relationship. So this is good advice. Woods? Fully agree. This is really good and very important advice. Mm -hmm. Kids need this for healthy development. They need to have one-on-one -on -one time with their parents. It really helps them feel like they're close and connected and like they matter. It helps parents cue into what their kid needs. It is only positive that they have the ability to do this unless, of course, there are safety concerns. Right. And I think there is science to suggest that it even helps to build the relationship with step-parents. So if I spend and time with and feel close to a biological parent and that parent feels close to and has a good relationship with their new spouse, I'm likely as a child to have a closer relationship with my step-parent. So I think, again, this has trickle out effects when we do this. So good advice. Do have family meetings weekly. Give everyone, including the kids, a chance to share how they feel what they like and don't like, and ask them to share both positive and negative opinions. Ask for suggestions for how to make things better. Good or bad advice? So I'm going to say bad advice. And let me tell you why. Like, I just okay. don't like this idea of weekly family meetings. I don't know how realistic that of an expectation that is, right? To have a weekly family meeting where everybody is going to share how they feel, what they like, what they don't like, and share positive negative opinions kind of feels like you're forcing a weekly therapy session on your family. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that may not be the best thing to do, especially when you are not. You just slide the tip jar into the middle of the table. Is that what you're like? Yeah. Yeah. Weekly therapy right. session. I like giving kids the chance to say how they feel, what they like, what they don't like, what's going well. But I don't know if you need a weekly family meeting to enact that structure. I think if you're having one-on-one -on -one conversations, if you're having group conversations, you know, like trying to set up this expectation of having a weekly family meeting, I think can be sometimes problematic because A, it's probably not going to happen for a long time. And B, it might create a sense of pressure on kids that they have to share at this time in this way. I think something more loose where you could have like a check-in or just a time to have conversation is probably gonna be more effective. So for me, I'm gonna say bad advice. Okay, bad advice, Woods. I think it's good advice. I don't, I mean, it could be shoot for the moon advice. It, I agree, it doesn't feel necessarily entirely realistic, but I think especially when, when kids may be moving around to different homes, having some regularly scheduled times in which you come together that are predictable for the whole family, also kind of a, a regular outlined predictable process for those conversations, maybe sharing leadership with kids, having a little bit of an agenda that you all want to talk about. It can be for positive reasons. It can be for planning family vacations. It can be for planning for upcoming birthdays, but it can also be to kind of sort out any bumps that come along the road. Again, I don't think this is just for step families. I just think it right. could be for families for whom this works and they can find time to do this. I think it can be maybe especially helpful for families where you're blended across different homes and trying to find time to intentionally connect. Yeah, I experienced this in a personal way. When my mother and stepfather married, I was like 12 and they took the step parenting class. I remember it distinctly. A positive experience, but they had like 
the, they had the class and then all of the kids went and played. So I just remember going to this school and anyway, but one of the advice was these, this weekly meeting. And I remember having them with my mother, my stepfather and myself and my two sisters. And it was fantastic. You know, it was, it was weekly and there was a talking stick and we got to voice a cheer because there are a lot of things that are confusing right off the bat, incorporating someone new into the family structure and what that looks like. Mm -hmm. And we were old enough to have opinions about things. And as things kind of moved forward, it wasn't weekly, maybe became monthly or, or as needed. I remember it being an enjoyable process. It was a time when I knew we all had to sit together as a family and, and talk or, or listen or, or whatever um, we, we did. So just from a personal experience, I really enjoyed these as a kid and it was a way to more tangibly make it obvious that my stepfather was part of the family and this is a family and this is what we do. So from my purely personal experience, I would think this is good advice, but I agree with you that it's kind of like a, a moonshot and how it works in each family might look a, a lot different, but I do like the way that it kind of, while you're forming the family, this new kind of family structure, you're kind of forcing the, the, the tangible boundaries around what this looks like and navigating through that. So the last one for today, the list goes on and on and we'll include it on the link that you can look at, is be ready to hear you're not my real mom slash dad. This is a stepchild's way of trying to take power away from your role. When it happens, the key is not to deny what your stepchild is telling you, keep it factual and avoid the power struggle. Your best bet, your, your right, I'm not your biological parent, I'm your step-parent, but that doesn't mean I love or care about you any less. Good or bad advice? I think this is good advice. I mean, this may not always be the case. Not all kids might say this phrase, but it, it could be likely, especially if and when a kid, especially I can imagine a younger kid is getting dysregulated and you're trying to be there and provide support and they're getting frustrated with you. This could be something that they would say. And I do like the response too. You're right. I'm not your biological mm -hmm. parent, but I still, I, I care about you. I love you and I want to be here to support you is a really empowering and important message. So I'm going to say good advice. Yeah, strong agree. I also think that's really good advice. It's a really nice example of a reflection, very validating. I heard you, I understand you, you're right, I get it. And also, I love you and I care about you. Yep, I love it. Good advice. So thanks for listening to Attach This Episode. Remember, call us, email us, tweet us, all of the social medias, all of your relationship advice you've received and you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk.